The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello, I'm Harry DeKetville, and welcome to the Technology Intelligence Podcast, where in this episode we're going to explore the future of the home. A recent study reveals that we're spending more time than ever within the four walls of our domestic setting, with the rise in popularity of remote working, internet shopping and stream services like Netflix and, well, you know the rest. So today we're going to look at the tech in our homes which are making them smarter. Having devices connected to the internet relaying data up to the cloud, where algorithms are busy interpreting it all, allow devices to respond smartly to the way we go about living our lives. Everything from digital door locks and video doorbells, intelligent thermostats and responsive lighting, to internet-enabled fridges. Until recently, the smart home sector, or the Internet of Things, was a niche corner of the tech market. And yet, with major players including Amazon, Apple and Google releasing smart home products and bringing with them their technological clout and substantial marketing budgets, getting smart home devices to work is actually becoming easier and the sector, as a result, is growing larger. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with one of the biggest cheeses at Amazon. Werner Vogels of Amazon Web Services, the cloud computing platform behind the Alexa voice recognition virtual assistant. Alexa, tell us a joke. What did the pepperoni say to the mozzarella? You want a pizza me? And we'll also be catching up with a bunch of leading smart home brands to hear what they're currently offering. Plus, we'll be exploring how the construction industry might use technology to improve houses of the future. And of course, we'll be analysing where all this might take us. If you learn anything from this podcast, spread the word and tell your friends. If there's an issue you have an opinion on or not, we'd love to hear from you. So get in touch. We're on Twitter at Telegraph Tech. So without further delay, let's begin. So here I am in the halls of the Royal Institute for British Architects, the Reba, this beautifully designed building in central London. And I've come here to a conference of the leading experts in smart home technology. From locks to lights to thermostats, everything about your home, if it's made, the makers are here. Hi, so I'm Duncan. I'm the country director for Tardo, who specialise in smart climate control solutions for people's homes. Most people think it's, it's quite boring about thermostats, but this is really cool stuff. So this is a smart thermostat that you can operate from your tablet or your phone. Your heating goes on and off automatically when you leave the house or automatically starts to heat out your house as you approach home. So not only is there an energy saving, but it really does revolutionise the way that you use your heating and how it interacts with you. So say you uh, have your heating normally set between 5 and 10 o'clock at night and you go for a beer after work, your heating won't come on at 5, it'll come on about 20 to 9 as you approach home after you've been to the pub so you've just saved three hours worth of heating. In my view you know everyone should have a smart thermostat uh, you know ours will save you over 30 percent per year so if your your energy bill is or your electric bill is, is a thousand pound you're saving over 300 pound a year so the payback for that is you know about six seven months for most people so you know I think certainly over the next two to three years we'll start moving into mass market we're almost there especially on the thermostat side and when you add in all of the other connected categories like lighting like doorbells security Security. I think once you've got one smart product, you start understanding the benefits, and I think then the rollout is then quite quick. So certainly, I think within a five-year period, most houses would be controlled by a smart thermostat for sure. 
I'm Giorgiani, I'm the Head of Technology for Philips Hue. We really think that lighting can be a huge amount more than just being on and off. We think lighting is a way of decorating your home, a way of helping us live healthier, to sleep better, and even a way of making our home safe. And we're really trying to make that easy through smart connected technology. In every one of these light bulbs, we put a small wireless computer with which we can actually control the lights to be able to change their colors, their brightness, and then we connect that towards the internet and smartphones to give you an easy way of controlling them. What you can do is you can control these lights from smart switches, with your voice, from a mobile application. You can set timers, you can have them react to, to motion sensors. And really, the, the sky's the limit in terms of making these lights do the right thing to support your life. Reality is people are doing this today, and it's all just about getting the, the word out that this is there and telling the stories of not why you would want a smart light bulb, but why a smart light bulb is the best way of decorating your home, why a smart light bulb is the right way of making your home more safe. It's all about telling those stories in a, a big way to as many people as possible. Hi, my name is Nigel Fisher. I'm the Managing Director of Yale Retail. I think it's all about convenience and lifestyle. So it's very liberating not having a key. It's also very liberating to be able to carry your key around in your phone. Very liberating also that I could send that key to anybody that I want to if they've got the right app and the right credentials. So scenario could be, I'm not in, I'm at work, I'm working late. I've got a parent coming or I've got a family member coming. They're outside my house. I view them on my camera. I can see them there, they phone me. I can send them the credential, they can let themselves in. Actually, if I don't want you to have it forever, I can just cancel it, it could be temporary. And then think of the uses then that we can have for things like assisted living. So meals and wheels or a dog walker or a cleaner coming to your house. You could let them have access to your house via a digital lock. Think of it from a bit of a, a commercial world. Every hotel, it's not a key anymore, it's a key card, it's convenience. And this is where we're going to start going into residential, you can start seeing that. So it's going to be gradual. But I think as we start getting, as we hear at the Smart Summit, we're talking about other suppliers coming together. And I think that's going to help the adoption rates. So wouldn't it be great that as soon as you open a Yale door lock, your lights come on by Philips? That's the kind of things we want to do. And that's where we keep going back to security and lifestyle together. My name is Abby Byram. I'm Director of Global Partner Marketing for SmartThings. I'm based in the U.S., but my key role is to bring our device partners together and look at ways to educate the consumer and go to market and expand awareness about smart home. SmartThings is part of Samsung. We are owned by them, but we are a independent business within the Samsung Corporation. We are a platform. We're an open cloud-based platform that allows you to connect all of your devices in your home so they can seamlessly talk to each other and, and you can create your own smart home. Smart home to you might be, I've got my Alexa and I have my Samsung smart TV and I've got these smart lights and they're wonderful. And you do have a smart home in that regard. They may not talk to each other. You've got three point-to-point -point solutions, work very well for your need state, done and dusted. My smart home has... 35 different solutions that are all connected through my SmartThings hub and I have routines and apps and scenes that are set up to manage them so that when I walk into my home, a different symphony of events is going to be set off. You know, my lights are going to come on, my temperature is going to adjust on my thermostat, my outdoor lights will turn on because I need to let the dogs out. There's a million and one different ways to build a smart home, define a smart home, teach somebody about what a smart home is. I, I don't know that 
seamlessly talking to each other has to be a requirement. It's more about getting consumers the right devices that work for what they need seamlessly. We were at the beginning of the hub game, but there's a massive trend right now to see Amazon, Google, and even HomeKit is kind of upping their game and saying, no, 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 come over here, look at our ecosystem. Smart things please in choice. All of these things are great for us. The same way that Amazon jumping into the market and creating these great products has helped the entire industry rise. Same will be with them creating hubs, same with Google creating hubs. This is a great thing. I don't know if I can speak for Amazon and Google, but we're not going to see a world where you buy an Amazon or a Google device and they don't work with SmartThings Hub. We're going to work with everybody. And listen, we're in the infancy of this industry, right? Like we've all been doing this three, four, five years. We have another three, four, five years to go before things really, really start clicking. But we are seeing that uptick right now. Well, I've now left Reba, and after hearing from all those companies, it seems that there's a real motivation within the industry to work together to ensure that everyone's products are compatible so that, well, there's a coherent customer experience. Now, one of the technologies that they're all relying on, these companies, and that provides the fundamental infrastructure for smart home devices is cloud computing. As we'll hear, the hardware of these devices can be quite basic, but the real processing power is up in the cloud. So next time heading over to the Excel Centre in East London to meet one of the most influential people working in technology today, Werner Vogels, the Chief Technology Officer at Amazon.com. And I'll hear from him a little bit more about the cloud computing platform that he runs, Amazon Web Services or AWS. AWS is the cloud computing division of Amazon. We have developed unique technologies to allow Amazon to scale and become highly reliable and secure. And we uh, wanted to start offering those services to other companies as well. And that has driven uh, the whole cloud computing revolution, where basically no business, whether you're small or whether you're an enterprise, actually invests in your own hardware anymore. You all get these capabilities from a cloud computing provider. So to begin with, AWS was about servers, storage and databases. But now it's much more, well, analytics. It's about mobile development. And of course, it allows for the Internet of Things and automation within the home. Much of the data that's being generated by these devices flow into the cloud, where then the real applications actually make use of these devices. Probably a good example there is uh, the Amazon Echo and Alexa voice service. So the Alexa voice service is the capability that sits in the cloud that does automatic speech recognition, natural language understanding, text-to-speech, and is able to invoke skills that other people have built. This is software that lives in the cloud. The device itself actually doesn't have that much capabilities. It can only do one thing. It listens to a wake word. And the wake word can be Alexa or computer or Amazon, depending on how you configure it. After you say the wake word, it records your voice and then sends that over the network into the cloud where you do all these machine learning capabilities, speech recognition, natural language understanding, all these capabilities. Work goes off and comes back with an answer. And then text-to-speech, Amazon Poly, actually then sort of uh, sends that back to the Echo device. So the Echo device doesn't have that much capabilities. It's a beautiful speaker in it, has great beam sensing for the microphones, 
but that's all that it can do. And that goes for most IoT devices. According to Werner, the arrival of Alexa voice recognition amounts to a massive step change in how we interact with digital systems. Screen, keyboard, mouse. In essence, not much things have changed in the past 40 years. The way the digital systems have been built until now has really been driven by the capabilities of the machinery. Even the smartphones, yeah, it's still a screen, a keyboard, and your finger, which is the mouse. It's not a natural way of interacting. Here, we're talking here. This is a podcast. This is not a Slack channel that you can read. Voice is such a natural way of interaction because it's how we humans interact. Voice is the first step in becoming human-centric in terms of the interfaces that we put on our digital systems. If you've ever given your grandmother an iPad, probably you know that the only thing that she does with it is hit the Skype button. Yeah? If she could talk to it, however, that would be very different because that's something she knows how to do. Yeah? And so digital systems have been sort of locked away to those who can really type and who knows how to use sort of the digital environment. Talking, however, something we can all do. And the arrival of voice recognition is a result of the huge technical advances in recent years. The past three to five years, let's say, we've seen an enormous uh, improvement in capability of hardware, meaning sort of the, the backend in the cloud that really needs to do all this AI and this machine learning kind of capabilities, and the software platforms that came with it. Both of them sort of advanced rapidly in lockstep with each other, better hardware, more difficult things that we could do. We already had voice systems for probably 10, 15 years, but all of those were what I would call command and control. Call this person, change the channel. Very simple ones, all that didn't require a natural response. So these voice systems only work really well if it feels as if it is a real human communication that you're having with this digital system. So for that, you need to be able to, in real time, very quickly give a response. Within a second, you need to get a response back from the system. Otherwise, it feels like talking to a computer instead of to a human. But doesn't it all feel just, well, a bit silly talking into the thin air, speaking to an inanimate device? Customers love it. As soon as you actually have been using an Echo or any of these other uh, uh, services, it's extremely seductive. Because this is what you normally do. We talk all the time. Yeah? And there is a level of what I would call app fatigue. Yeah? Where, really? really? Do we really need to load a new app on my phone? I need to learn that one just because I need to access whatever, my new bank account somewhere. I've heard numbers of that, sort of 80% of the apps on your phone are actually never used anymore. So there's a sort of fatigue setting in, but there's no fatigue in talking. We do it all the time. When looking at other sectors in previous episodes, it's been clear that innovations have had the potential for broad societal change. And yet within the home, technologies seem mainly to be about comfort and convenience. Would that be fair? Convenience is always a driver. Yeah, if you look at... Um, if you look at the success of a retailer like Amazon.com, you know, definitely making it very convenient for you to order and to place uh, orders and to get packages. Convenience plays an extremely important role and I think that will be forever the case. However, will we see a cycle happening, a feedback cycle where our behavior changes because these are the capabilities in and around your homes? Absolutely. How that looks like? We all have to see. So when I went to the Smart Home Summit, it was easy to get the impression that small companies were going to have to deal with the rules laid down by behemoths like Amazon. 
and that Amazon would wield huge power in determining the direction that the sector might take. And in some ways, smaller companies might just have to take dictation from them. So is Amazon's presence and the arrival and rapid uptake of Alexa an exclusive one or an inclusive one? There's a reason why we built Alexa Voice Service as a platform that anybody else can extend. Do you want your thermostat to be integrated into Alexa? As it is, you just have to build a skill. And anybody can build a skill and deploy the skill. So whether that is towards hardware devices, whether it is towards Uber and Lyft and whatever, all of them are having their services integrated into Alexa, where you can say, hey, Alexa, send an Uber to the Excel. Yeah? And so where they know it's on my account, who they need to look for, things like that. So I think it is up to the individual companies to actually extend the Alexa platform to make sure it's completely inclusive. And there's no reason for us to exclude any company there. If you drive home uh, in your your car soon, you'll be able to say, hey, Alexa, turn on the porch lights, open the garage door, set the temperature to 20 degrees and start playing with hot chili peppers. Yeah. And so basically these are five different skills by different vendors. Yeah. But they all come together on the Alexa platform. And so I think that's sort of the democratization of voice access is not to restrict where your customers can go to, but really to open it up. And I think the extensibility of the Alexa platform is a really powerful one. So how soon will we actually have smart homes? I think look at new cars that are being built, are all built with hundreds of sensors in them. I mean, you cannot buy a new car without sensors. But at the same time, there was billions of cars out there that don't have this functionality in them. And given how long we drive our cars, it might take a while before every car has all these sensors in it. So I like to believe that the same thing will be happening in the home. Yeah? In the existing homes, we'll slowly start bringing in new capabilities, whether that is the ability to control your lights or the ability to control your temperature or to see who is in front of the door. Slowly, these things will arrive in existing home. New homes will probably be built in a very different way. From the products of the smart home and the tech that facilitates them, let's now pivot to how new homes themselves might be built. To do so, I'm going to speak to Andy Robinson, chief executive of Colmore Tang via Skype. The Midlands-based construction company have teamed up with Virgin to launch an initiative to find the next construct tech innovations. And as it turns out, Construction really is ripe for tech disruption because, well, as Andy explains, it's a very traditional industry. There are somewhere in the region of 15% of the industry are due to retire over the next 10 years. So I think the average age of people in the industry is getting older. Uh, The GFC has probably deprived the industry of maybe two generations of new young people, new ideas uh, coming through into the sector. Uh, And therefore, you have a very squeezed middle group of people who are working hard to try and do what they need to do. But adopting new ideas and new technologies is always a risk. And therefore, it's easier to stick with what you know, how you've always done it. It's generally cheaper. So why make the change now? I don't want to be the one that's responsible for something going wrong. But, you know, we've got to do something because there's a huge skills gap. So we have to find a way. And the only way is to look at technology and how we can improve skills through technology. By the way, GFC stands for Global Financial Crash. So can tech actually help the construction industry get costs down? I don't think there's any other way because otherwise we rely upon manpower and, and the skills of that, uh, our tradespeople 
we simply haven't got enough. There's somewhere in the region of 800,000 self-employed tradespeople who work in the industry. Uh, we don't have a direct control over them, in a sense, because they are self-employed. Because of successive recessions, the industry's moved away from direct labor and taken all of that off its balance sheet. In doing so, you actually genuinely subcontract your delivery. So how can it be done then? Well, one of the big expenses in construction is worker wages. So being able to spot when workers aren't being productive is vital. Being able to recognise it quickly and as it happens is also vital. And generally speaking, that doesn't happen. So how do we improve or drive down costs? Uh, yes, automation is one thing. Yes, having exoskeleton to help people lift things. But these are not inexpensive pieces of technology. And the largest cost that we would have typically beyond uh, certain materials in building is manpower. And you're right to ask the question, how do we reduce manpower and reduce costs using technology? And I think that is a really, really difficult uh, conundrum for the industry. And what about materials? There is glass that can act as a photovoltaic cell, uh, but it's very, very expensive. Obviously, using tiles as photo uh, cells now is also available. We can get spray on plaster as opposed to being skimmed in home. So that should speed things up. I mean, I'd love to see graphene used in um, building, but it's still very, very expensive, but highly conductive, incredibly strong, incredibly light. We could use it for all forms of building once it becomes used in such quantities that it's affordable. So I think things like that we have got to start adopting over the next few years to be more sustainable in the way that we build. So we've heard all about the smart home and the rise of affordable sensors leading to the production of useful data for consumers. But are sensors being embraced at all in construction? There are already sensors in concrete for curing. Uh, the old method was, you know, um, if you're laying a floor, you know it's going to take four days to cure. Well, the reality is it might only take two and a half. And if you can gain one and a half days productivity because you know it's cured, and the way that they're doing that is by putting senses in concrete. But taking your point on, I think all facets of the house and all forms of material can be connected, will be connected, and will provide data for the homeowner to drive a decision. So I think that will come without a doubt. And this is where smart construction can meet the smart home, with sensors throughout the house informing owners of leaks and subsidence issues, for example, before they become disasters. Well, you know, a lot of this technology actually already seems to exist, but much of it isn't truly affordable and probably won't become so before there's widespread adoption. Who can drive that widespread adoption? Well, it's probably up to the big house builders, those five or six companies across the country who build the vast majority of new homes. Until they adopt and build in these smart technologies, most of the public won't benefit from them. So we'll have to wait and see if they do. Another thing that Andy mentions is off-site construction. Well, that's another area of potential innovation. Building homes in factories means you can drive the quality and speed of construction up within a controlled environment. Think of it as the Model T Ford factory, but for houses. You'd think that would be hugely attractive and everyone would love to do it, but there are stumbling blocks. 
One key player, for example, the mortgage provision industry, is unwilling to adopt and adapt to new models. If a mortgage company wants to provide a mortgage and you say, well, this is a nice new modular home, they will say, well, where's my guarantee? Where's my NHBC standard? And um, at the moment, the standard for off-site manufactured homes and volumetric is known as BOPAS. BOPAS will only guarantee for 40 years, where a mortgage provider will say, I need a minimum of 66 or 70 or 75. So there's a disconnect between the finance industry and innovation because they don't want to adopt new methods because it affects their financial model. So there is a real disconnect in the industry between what the mortgage providers want, what innovators are trying to do, and how you cross that divide. And to innovate, you you can't be that risk averse. This is the Technology Intelligence Podcast from The Telegraph, exploring the future of your home. So we've heard from our entrepreneurs from the smart home, the cloud computing and construction sectors. Next, we're going to visit another Andy. This time, it's Professor Andy Hudson-Smith of University College London's Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis, a research lab that looks at how cities and places and spaces work and fit together. So, as a self-confessed fan of tech and someone who researches the future of it every day, does Andy think that the smart home has managed to improve our lives thus far? I'm not sure that it has, actually. This is the point where I'm at. I think the smart home has just tipped into the consumer mass market. But when you look at all the devices, if you actually take a step back without being someone who loves tech, you could sit there and think, well, why have you done that? Why do you need to change the colour of your light bulbs from the app on your phone? Or why do you need to dim your light bulbs? Couldn't you just do it using a normal switch? But I'd argue that to see how the future is going to come, you need to early adopt and see what doesn't work. And there's notable potential there. I think all of them fail the usability test. Every one of these smart devices comes with its own hub. It has to be connected to your Wi-Fi. And often you have to connect it via the Wi-Fi via a Bluetooth system. And it's fine for initial setup, but if your Wi-Fi changes or your password changes, you've got to change every one of them. And they often don't like being changed. I think the risk is all of these pieces of hardware connect to the cloud and there's services out there that you often pay for. And if these companies change their long-term plan or they go bankrupt, that service shuts off and you're basically left with a brick that you've paid £100 plus for. I think there's a big risk currently in the marketplace that people are buying a lot of future bricks. And when will the smart home market mature to make our lives genuinely easier? I think we're at a shift of what easier is and what the smart home is. So we've got the word smart put in front of anything possible. It's the red dwarf toaster sketch where the toaster's made smart. And we're at that point now. And I think that's suddenly going to change because the devices we use, the artificial intelligence will begin to kick in. And the word smart will just blur into useful devices. Will this be voice activated, as Werner would have you think? I think voice is the current hype. I mean, I own every voice device you can buy, actually, and I've turned them all off. I've turned them all off because I don't find them very useful. And that's an interesting shift. I think voice is a lot of hype. The Gartner hype curve, it was at the peak. I think we're moving towards something beyond voice now. 
we like to hold things, we like to touch things. So the haptic feedback isn't there yet. It's a combination of some sort of augmented reality and haptic system with voice built in that will begin to change things. But it's a human computer interface that we haven't built yet. And should we trust all these devices in our home? Aren't security and privacy a massive concern? It's a well-timed question. We have a new uh, research grant, which is around the Internet of Things, Cybersecurity and Trust. And it's how we trust the devices that we use. Arguably, we shouldn't do. Whatever plugs in, links to a Wi-Fi network, goes to an outside server. And therefore, that data is already outside your house. Once multiple people use these data feeds, they could understand when you're at home, when you're not at home. So maybe your house is at risk then. They understand the patterns of your life and obviously the things that you buy. And that's coming from data that you're willingly sharing. And they will be selling that data on. So maybe we're at the point where we should realise what our data is worth. And we go into a contract with the companies that we buy the devices from that we're either willing to share our data or we're not willing to share. But this is becoming voice-level data. We're sharing our conversations now. And I don't quite know how we got this into the home without people kicking up a fuss. But no one has kicked up a fuss. We just kind of like it because it's convenient. But when I spoke to Werner, he absolutely guaranteed security and privacy of these smart home devices. So how does this disparity in opinion exist? Isn't the device only listening out for a keyword? Nothing goes over the network until that word is said. They're always looking for that keyword, but that keyword can be hidden sometimes. So there is an article in the news this week where software hackers have put a sound file in people's homes that humans cannot hear, but the devices can hear, and that triggers things. So there are ways around things. Basically, nothing is safe. You look at people from large tech firms, and they have a plaster over their webcam of well-known laptop devices. And you think, okay, well, if he's got that or she's got that and I haven't got that, Why am I trusting this thing which is listening to everything I say? And I have it in various meetings. So we have them throughout the lab. They're fantastic from a research point of view. But they will occasionally just say, I did not hear that. And you think, well, you didn't hear that because I didn't say the trigger word. So they will misunderstand. They will trip up at, at some time. So nothing is safe and everything can be hacked. And as long as you're happy with, with that, put them in your lounge. At the back of my mind, there's always that little doubt. Why am I doing this? And is it safe? And I do know from a research point of view that no, it isn't. So once we have all this data coming out of smart devices in smart homes, not just one smart home, but whole neighbourhoods of smart homes and people carrying smart devices on them all the time, well, what's going to be the result of that? If you multiply this up to a city level, you've got data about places and spaces that we never had before. So we know where you are, we know where the crowd is. We've basically got a census that used to be every 10 years in real time, every second of the day. So in the future, London will arguably become self-aware. London will be plugged into its own AI system and it will wake up one day and say, oh, hello, London's nice, this is how I'm supposed to run. And Paris will wake up and say, okay, Paris. This is how Paris is meant to work. 
and the cities will learn about themselves and begin to run themselves as a machine. I think it will organically grow. I don't think this can be done by one firm. I think it naturally grows. There's lots of talk about let's make London smart, let's make Chicago smart. I don't think the big companies are actually the places to do this. I think the citizens are. So the citizens are becoming smart and they're sharing their data out there. And as long as the data's there, it just goes into an AI system and the system learns. So the tube will automatically run, the buses will run. It knows where the people are. It will optimise the system. They also pick up your mood via social networks or whatever technology we, we have. So they will know how the people feel. So they will know where maybe pinch points are. They will be able to predict future riots, perhaps. They will be able to manage and police themselves. Now, you could question whether that's a good thing, because maybe London runs on chaos, and that's a good thing. Maybe cities are a chaotic, unplanned system. That's what gives them their life. So there's the risk that you take the feel of the city out of it once these systems begin to come on line. For Andy, the next big change will be our embracing virtual realities. You can see it on cruise ships currently. You can see those early glimpses, not virtual realities, but just screens outside the window that isn't there, that shows the sea. But the sea's not there. It's an LED screen. And it's interesting how the virtual window is beginning to change or will change future living. Because we can have whatever vista, whatever view we like. We naturally drive towards happiness and virtual reality can make us build these utopian worlds but the problem is once you're in them apart from the battery dies how do you get people out of of them people are getting hooked on well-known gaming systems currently fortnite it's a very addictive online game as soon as you put that into a virtual reality system or whatever comes next you will have people in there for 12 hours a day and they will begin to live their lives there and I think there's an interesting psychological shift that no one's really talking about yet this is not a bright future which I am painting here but these are the crossroads we're at and choices do need to be made so one potential future is down that route where virtuality overtakes our lives but is there anything to be upbeat about this is what we're building up to. You know, you know, this is what the Earth is currently moving towards. And it is a fantastic place. You just look at how far we have come in 100 years. You know, the healthcare system has transformed. Our housing has transformed. We have an awful lot to look forward to in the next 100 years. It will just be more technology-led. So we're moving to a revolution which is technology in the consumer and that's our next push and i'm excited it seems that what we're looking at when we talk about the future of the home is a threefold revolution the first is happening inside with all your devices all your utilities your washing machine your fridge changing and becoming connected to the internet in a way which hopefully will save you time and make your life more convenient The second scale is happening outside the home with sensors built into your roof, your floor, your foundations and for builders of those homes to make their lives easier too. Is your house falling over? Well, hopefully in future you'll know about it sooner. 
And the third phase is when all the data pushed out by smart networks inside and outside our homes connect together. They might begin to connect to give our cities, well, something amounting to consciousness. That's it for this episode. In episode six, we'll be looking at the future of food. We'll be speaking to entrepreneurs about the distribution of food and the technologies that are supporting farmers, as well as the development of so-called clean meats as an alternative to the, well, raise them and kill them practices of our livestock today. All that as well as the usual context about where we've come from in the past and where we're heading to in the future. And finally, if technology is your thing, you can hear a daily update on the latest technology news from The Telegraph by searching for Telegraph Technology on any Amazon or Google device. Alexa, can you give me the latest Telegraph Technology news, please? Here's your flash briefing from Telegraph Technology Intelligence. GCHQ has told football fans not to connect to hotel Wi-Fi okay, Alexa, or leave enough. their... <laughs> Back in your box, Alexa. Until next time, goodbye.